This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant, temporarily based in East Hampton, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. The Center, <laughs> the Center for Cyberethics is the producer of the Cybertraps podcast, although it's really just the two of us eating chat. <laughs> in any case, the Center for Cyber Ethics is an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. In this episode, We are sharing Fred's presentation from the Professional Practices Institute that we attended in October. Our presenter today is the one and only Fred Lane, who is a nationally recognized expert on privacy and uh, in the impact of emerging technologies in society. Uh, Fred is the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cyber Traps, Educators 2.0. 3.0 will be out really soon. Sit back and enjoy this uh, really interesting presentation, which I've had a chance to uh, take a peek at. It should be really interesting to the entire audience. Thank you, sir. (laughs) Yeah, you may notice a small microphone adjustment. Anyway. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's always good to follow someone who's two feet taller than I am. Anyway, I <laughs> I would like to um, tell you just how much this means to me to be able to stand in front of a live group and see people in person. It's just vastly easier to see who's checking their email and doom-scrolling Twitter uh, when we're not on Zoom. So thank you for that. Uh, let's go through a quick rundown of what we're going to be doing today. So the purpose of this particular presentation is to provide you with a quick update of kind of the leading trends in social media apps by teens. And whether this is relevant to you as parents or investigators, obviously that's your individual situation, but it is deeply relevant to members of the school community because educators are surrounded by all of these little gremlins who are using digital technology constantly and they are eager to find the next big thing and roll it out amongst their friends and so forth. So uh, we will be going over a list of some of the leading topics. We're not going to go through them in great detail because just putting them in front of you is enough for the moment and gives you something to look at down the road. The more interesting piece is that the impact that these are having on digital investigations, how you actually get information from these apps and use it in educator misconduct cases. So that's where this is going to go. This, by the way, I live in Crown Heights in Brooklyn right now, not far from the Brooklyn Museum. Uh, they take Halloween very seriously. So um, that was just one I thought would be useful for you. Um, remarkable to think that it's now been a decade since I was on the Burlington School Board, but I did have a chance to serve uh, for 10 years on the board, worked with the tech committee. Um, we actually did introduce broadband <laughs> into the community, Shane, so there's at least one corner of the state that knows how to get online. Um, it is really, uh, it was really fascinating. The big piece of this, from my personal perspective, is that when I got on the board in 2001, we were negotiating with tech companies like Dell and IBM and Apple and all the rest of it for one-to-one -one initiatives. And by the time I got off the board in 2011, we were trying to keep up with the devices the kids were bringing into schools. So the change in the dynamic between educators and students and then educators with the school community was incredibly rapid. And it has just exploded in the last decade since then. Uh, Q was nice enough to list the recent books. Uh, when I was not perfecting my sourdough in 2020, I got Raising Cyberethical Kids and Cybertraps for Educators 2.0 finally off the ground. As he alluded to, I'm in the process of updating to Cybertraps for Educators 3.0. My goal is to be able to you know, dedicate it to Mike as he leaves NASDAQ next June, but uh, we'll see about that. In any case, uh, one other project emerged from the pandemic that I'm really, really proud of. Uh, in September, my friend and colleague Jethro Jones reached out to me about potentially doing a podcast. He's here joining us uh, for this conference and talking to various people. And then out of that has emerged a 501c3 that we're working on together called the Center for Cyberethics, and it's designed to promote cyber ethics in a variety of different fields, obviously starting with education. So that's the intro piece. 
Let's move on to a quick rundown of what the kids are using today. So the leading apps for teens really can be broken down into the big three and then everything else. And most of you, I'm sure, could list the big three. Number one is Snapchat, which is quote unquote disappearing messages, short videos, live video, etc. The thing that kids lose sight of, and way too many educators lose sight of as well, is that the disappearing is a mythology for a variety of different ways. For starters, within Snapchat itself, you can screenshot anything you see. Now, in a quote-unquote disappearing message, that means that the sender will get a notice, but that doesn't get rid of the data. Now you've got a copy of the data sitting on your phone. Or alternatively, you can take another device and you can photograph or video record anything that shows up on the Snapchat screen. So, you know, this, the, <laughs> I, I sometimes get on a moral high horse about Snapchat because it was launched by a bunch of USC grads who wanted to persuade their sorority friends that they could safely send photos that would disappear. And I think that there should be some kind of moral penalty for apps that start in a bad way. Um, unfortunately, the world doesn't work that way because these guys are all multi-billionaires, so make of that what you will. Um, number two in the hit list for teens these days is TikTok. It is owned by ByteDance, which is a Chinese company. There are massive privacy and national security implications associated with all of this. Um, you obviously can create, share, and save brief videos of, I think now they're up to three minutes because the kids really demanded more opportunity. Um, the thing about this is twofold. Number one, it allows private accounts. So educators can create a private TikTok account and use it to communicate with one particular student. There's been a handful already of cyber stalking cases, or I guess cyber TikToking cases, however you want to put it, um, that have involved this particular app. So there's that piece of it. Another piece of it is that it, Unlike Snapchat, these are not disappearing videos, and you can save any TikTok you see to your camera roll for whatever purpose you may want to do so. And then the other thing, and we'll talk a little bit about this as we're going through the cyber traps, is that it is a communication tool. So the thing is that any form of communication an educator wants to engage in, they can use TikTok to do. So they can message people. They can get themselves in trouble because they are making political commentary. They can create lewd dances that upset members of their school community. So when we're talking about these different kinds of cyber traps, it's not even necessarily that we're talking about a specific tool. We're talking about how these tools are used. And as I like to say to people, it's really not about the app, it's about the behavior. And that's really the challenge that we're facing with all of this. And then lastly, Instagram, owned by a highly destructive American company, some of you may have heard of, Facebook. Um, it is a significant psychological problem for children. There have been a raft of recent articles showing that the company has been aware of the psychological harm, particularly to young women. Um, the company has not done anything about it because they see that as a feature, not a bug. And then related to that, of course, it has the potential for one-to-one -one surreptitious communication from educator to student. So, just something to be aware of. Um, this is 
<laughs> the fun thing, I did uh, research, I think, into about a dozen different articles from various resources around the net. Um, all of this is in the app. I see Catherine taking a long-distance photo. Um, <laughs> certainly, you're welcome to get in touch with me if you want a better copy or a PDF delivered to you. I've highlighted, as you can see there, three or four things. SMS remains the 800-pound gorilla for interpersonal communications between educators and students. This is one of the reasons that the practice of handing out educator cell phones, cell phone numbers, is really inadvisable. And I lecture, with, I lecture with school districts of all sizes, and that's an easier rule to put into place when you've got 3,000 teachers and a community of you know, half a million people. It's much more difficult if you're talking about a small Alaskan community which has 300 people in it and they all know each other. But still, even so, if you've got kids in school, you know, my, my recommendation, to the extent you can enforce it, is for that period of time, you're not social media friends, you're an educator first, and then when they graduate, well, do whatever you want. Um, quickly following behind uh, SMS is Kick Messenger and WhatsApp. These are free texting resources, both of them with over basically a billion users. Um, phenomenally sophisticated in terms of the information you can exchange, you can do videos, you can do filters, you can do text, all the rest of that. The one that I think you really should um, be aware of as kind of an up-and-coming player is this thing called Discord, which is something that emerged from the gaming community. And basically, it's a series of worldwide servers that allows people to create communities of any size to discuss whatever they want to discuss. So very easily, for instance, an educator could create a Discord community for one person as a potential tool. So this is something that IT departments should be aware of. There's really not much justification for having Discord within the school community, but you also need to be aware that kids are hyper aware of Discord because of its influence within the gaming communities. It has been a significant player in terms of harassment, uh, child pornography, grooming for sexual trafficking and sexual assault, so on and so forth, largely because so few adults by and large, are aware of what's going on. That being said, it's got a quarter of a billion users around the world. So when kids are going on to Discord and they're logging into these communities, they quite literally can be talking to anybody. So it's a really phenomenal uh, resource if it's used well, but it also has this dark side. Okay. Elmo had a tough night in Brooklyn one night. Um, <laughs> I. I I am, I have to confess, not quite um, as fast a runner as I used to be, and so now I use it as much for photography as actual exercise. So it's always fun to see what's on the streets of Brooklyn. Point about um, digital investigations. In terms of all of the resources that I just put up in front of you, the question is going to be, if you suspect, or if you've been called in on one of the potential cyber traps that involves an investigation, how can you get information? What information can you get? And where can it be found? So the very first consideration that pops up is the age of the individual that you're dealing with. Because, you know, what kids routinely hate being told this, but they have a smaller pool of constitutional rights than adults do. 
It's really remarkable if you've got a 17-year-old student's cell phone and they turn 18 the next day, their constitutional rights shift just by that one day's change. So what we run into is that with respect to the US Constitution, we've got these competing considerations. Obviously, the Fourth Amendment with respect to search and seizure is the big one. Uh, we could toss in there for the adults as well the Fifth Amendment. They have a right to avoid self-incrimination. There's this rather nebulous right to privacy, which emerged in uh, Eisenstadt, excuse me, Griswold versus Connecticut, and then was reinforced by Eisenstadt v. Baird, and then eventually by Roe v. Wade, which, by the way, just as a reminder, is a privacy case. Not an abortion case, it's a privacy case as to when a woman is entitled to a private conversation with her medical professional. So this is one of the things, I think, as we watch what is unfolding down in the Supreme Court, raises significant implications for whether or not we do have a constitutional right to privacy. And the yank, of course, with all of this is that there's absolutely no use of the word privacy in the US Constitution at all. So we have to we have this expectation now which is almost mythology about having a right to privacy, but it for all intents and purposes is completely judge created. So that ought to be a sobering thought. On the other hand, we share everything with Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the rest of it. So the right to privacy, interesting conversation to have. In loco parentis though, gives school districts and gives investigators much more leeway in terms of dealing with kids. So if you have, as a school administrator, a reasonable suspicion that there is evidence of wrongdoing on a student device, then the school is within its rights to get that device and do an investigation. Now it has to be limited to the reasonable justification that launched the search. So if you're worried about you know, a drug sale, for instance, and you're looking for text messages, that probably doesn't give you the ability to go through their photos. Kind of two different things, but it's, it's an important distinction in terms of age. Now, state laws and regulations, obviously, you've got state constitutional principles. They can go further than the US Constitution, but they cannot be lesser than. So that's one of the ongoing fights that occurs in the courts. You may be interested as licensing professionals in trying to regulate permission to search, but you can't trump the Fourth Amendment right to avoiding unreasonable search and seizure. And so that's the same thing that run, you run into with district policies and procedures. A district may think it's going to get clever and say, you know, if we think something is wrong, you by default give us permission to search your device and that would not stand. So in all of these cases involving investigations of educators, you would have to go through the due process procedures that were just outlined in the previous session to really give people an opportunity to be heard and object to any search and seizure that they think is unreasonable. There are two cases that are potentially relevant to all of this that I think are worth highlighting for you. Number one is a 2014 case, Riley versus California. This came as a huge shock to people, which did not think that even back in 2014, the Supreme Court was gonna come down in a pro-privacy way. But this involved a traffic stop. And prior to Riley, the rule was that when law enforcement 
did a valid traffic stop, they were entitled to search anything within the car that could be potentially harmful to law enforcement. And using that as a justification, they took Riley's cell phone and started going through it to look for evidence of potential crimes. And he took it up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said that because the cell phone cannot be harmful to police as a physical object, I mean, you'd have to be really strong to turn that into a decent weapon. Um, the thing is that the, once the police have physical control of it, then they've secured it, and they need to go get a search warrant in order to search the device. And the reason this is important for state investigators is because there's a growing awareness on the part of courts that our entire lives are on these devices. So, you know, for those of you who are familiar with your Fourth Amendment history, one of the reasons the Fourth Amendment was adopted was it was a protest against general warrant searches by people in the port of Boston. This is very personal to a Bostonian. And so the, the thing was that in the, colony, in the colonial days, the folks from the British Crown would show up and they would search anything they wanted to, in your home, in your boat, in your carriage, whatever it was. And it was really an execution of a general warrant. And the Fourth Amendment requires a specific warrant. Law enforcement has to go to a judge and say, this is what we're specifically looking for. And this is gonna be directly relevant to people who are trying to conduct searches in the context of a school uh, you know, mistake or misbehavior by an educator. Also relevant along these lines, and this is where you're starting to deal with students, a little bit outside the licensing field, but I think it's still good to be aware of this. Uh, 2021, again, a little bit of a surprise, an eight to one decision in Mahanoy area school district versus, we now know, Brandy Levy. Um, she was a disgruntled cheerleader who did not make the first team. She got very upset about it, used Snapchat to uh, make a couple of really expletive-laden <laughs> objections to the outcome and the decision by the coaches. And she was disciplined and kept off the team for a year, and she sued, arguing that that was an unfair impingement on her First Amendment rights. And the schools argued that they have a right to regulate even off-campus speech if it is disruptive to the school environment. And the court kind of punted on some of this. They said, yeah, in theory, if it's sufficiently disruptive, a school may have that right. They really just left it for a future day. But they completely concluded that in this case, there was almost nothing about what the cheerleader said that was actually disruptive. Um, so they just bounced it out on, on that basis. But clearly, the courts are now grappling with this idea of how much can you investigate social media? How far can you go in retrieving this information? So. Um, I'm not going to go into this in a huge amount of detail, and you'll see in the material that's in the app that at the back, basically as an appendix, is a preview of the reorganization that I'm doing for Cybertraps for Educators 3.0. The big advancement to version 2.0, as Anne-Marie knows full well, was to incorporate the MCLE. And as I've been working in this area, it has struck me that we can divide what educators do into these three main categories. So personal cyber traps are ones that would relatively rarely involve 
action by the school. Now, there's a little bit of blurring with respect to this because you can do something stupid in your personal life and it can affect your ability to be a role model. But in general, if someone simply makes a mistake or they're actively targeted by someone, that's probably not gonna get them in front of you from a licensing perspective. Where things obviously do is in the second and third categories. So professional cyber traps, I'm lumping together things where educators are acting badly towards others on the job. You know, when they're actually in the classroom, when they're dealing with school issues in one way or another. Um, primarily investigated by schools or the school district, um, not likely to necessarily blow up to a full-blown licensing action. Um, but the schools may run into the problem of getting access to this data. And then with criminal cyber traps, of course, you've got actual commission of crimes or alleged commission of crimes. Um, the ability or the, the involvement of law enforcement is actually a plus for that purpose. And, and to some degree, for those of you who have subpoena capability in the execution of your jobs, because now you can get the attention of third-party data holders, which is the big thing here. So one of the things that pops up in the digital investigations that I help with sometimes is that you may have someone who's got a very legitimate claim against another individual, but it falls into the civil realm, like infliction of emotional distress or something like that. And they may want to get evidence from Facebook about the things that have been said about them online. Because you know Facebook has its own backups and archives, and something may have been deleted on the app, but there's a reasonable argument that Facebook has it. And Facebook is extremely reluctant to get involved in civil cases. It is very, very difficult to get their attention. On the other hand, they've got a very large department specifically designed to handle law enforcement subpoenas and administrative subpoenas. So it's a much different dynamic when you start getting into data collection for criminal matters. Okay, how do you search and seize a cloud? Uh, here we go, witnesses and sources of data. So we'll run down some of these different categories and get you thinking about how they interplay with each other. Obviously, the best case scenario is you've got cooperative witnesses. So if you're doing some investigation that involves an educator and a student, and the student comes forward and is willing to work with you as part of your investigation, then everything they've got on their phone is fair game in terms of evidence. They can turn that over to you. Gets actually the one category that gets a little bit dicey are if they've recorded something. So that's going to depend upon your state laws with respect to one or two person consent for recordings. But if it's written down, it's all good to go. So that makes a huge difference. Um, where things, of course, get challenging is if you've got uncooperative witnesses. Um, almost certainly the educator is going to be uncooperative <laughs> because this is not what they want to be doing. Um, if you run into a situation where the student is still uh, infatuated with the educator, which certainly happens, you may remember the case down in Tennessee uh, from three, four years ago where the teacher and the 15-year-old student took off across country and it took like two and a half months for them to be tracked down, I think, in Northern California at some shack. Um, remarkably, the, like this whole area was off the grid and somehow one of the neighbors 
to this remote shack, recognized the girl and reported that she and the teacher were there. So they got hauled back to Tennessee and it took about four months before she would cooperate with investigators. She did not want this guy to be prosecuted. And of course, you know, Stockholm Syndrome and all the rest of that uh, playing into that. But it's, it's really, you know, an interesting dynamic. If they're uncooperative, then you're starting to get into these investigative techniques that don't necessarily involve their cooperation. So the first and foremost is, what about public-facing social media? Things that the individuals have put online that are available to the public. It is very much like putting trash out on your green space in front of your house. You have no constitutional prohibition or constitutional right to prevent that material from being used in some way. So if you're putting stuff up on your Facebook wall or your Instagram and law enforcement can see it without doing anything nefarious, that's all fair game. Now, it gets trickier in terms of getting access to things that might be in a social media app but can only be viewed by using their user ID and password. And so, you know, obviously with the Fifth Amendment right to be free from self-incrimination, the bad guy is not necessarily going to want to turn that over. You may have to go in and try to get a court to get given order for that to be turned over, which may or may not work. Um, parents, parents actually have a much greater ability because do not forget that the child is not the owner of their device. This is a really important thing that most children overlook. They are not the contractual owner of either the device or the data plan, except in relatively rare instances where they're actually paying for it. But even then, if they're under the age of 18, they can't legally contract to be the owner of the device. So that leaves the parents in the position of controlling access to that device. Now, that being said, of course, and I'm sure this will come as no shock, you get uncooperative parents <laughs> who some, for whatever reason, don't want their kid involved in this. They don't want to hurt the teacher because the teacher may be a friend, maybe you know, a family member, God forbid. There's a whole pile of different reasons. But in terms of doing this initial investigation, if you're dealing with a potential victim who's under the age of 18, the real focus needs to be on the parents, not so much on the kid. And then obviously with respect to uncooperative, excuse me, with, well, both cases, with uncooperative witnesses, particularly those that are children, don't forget that kids share an unbelievable amount of information. So part of the investigative process is knowing who their friends are. And that is almost certainly going to be public facing. So you can go on to their Instagram account and see who their friends are and then talk to them and see if they've been forwarded material that the kid has shared with them. And that becomes also fair game in a variety of different ways. Also, Data stored, and this is where we get into some really fun, both technical and legal issues. Um, number one, if for some reason you've got an educator who is involved in an investigation and they have used, for instance, school email to groom and solicit a student, they have no grounds for objecting to that material being produced and turned over. And it is still to this day stunning to me how many cases pop up in this day and age 
where educators are using email to groom students. I'm not asking them to be smarter. It still amazes me that that happens so often. Data stored on personal equipment. So obviously, there's at least you know, N plus 20 smartphones in this room. I know some of you carry more than one. And some of those, obviously, are personal devices. And, and for educators, if they're bringing a personal smartphone to school and they're engaging in criminal conduct while they use it, the issue is, what ability do you have to secure that device and get information off of it? And this is where we flip back to the Constitution. Assuming your educators are over the age of 18, they have a constitutional right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. Interestingly, there's remarkably little case law on search and seizure of personal devices of educators. Uh, when I was going through the research for this, really the most recent case was about a decade ago, and it involved a teacher who was kicked off campus left a bunch of stuff behind, including a locked cabinet, and the school wanted to use the classroom. So they went in and they drilled out the lock to the cabinet, and inside they discovered photos of the teacher with a female student, and those they wanted to use those in a subsequent prosecution. And the court basically allowed them to do so on the grounds that even though he had had a locked cabinet, his expectation of privacy did not override the value of the evidence. So we're going to start seeing at some point more um, cases involving personal devices. It is absolutely inevitable. I think the assumption will be, and this is where we get back a little bit to Riley, is that even if a teacher drops their smartphone while they're running away from the school because they don't want to be investigated, and you pick the phone up, you still need to get a search warrant in order to look inside it. So just in general, default to search warrant, it's, it's an annoying process, but it will prevent the case from being thrown out. Third-party servers, um, obviously, if you're law enforcement, if you have administrative subpoenas, you will get the attention of a Facebook, a TikTok, an Instagram, what have you. And, and in my experience, in terms of the cases I've worked on, they're really fast now in terms of producing this stuff. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the impediments, one of them being the sheer volume of material you will get back. You know, do not underestimate the amount of data that these kids or these teachers generate. And you may have to develop procedures for sifting through it. Okay, impediments to accessing data. So here's probably the biggest, and, and this, you know, in terms of general usage is anonymity and what I refer to as obfuscation. The effort to hide what people are doing. Um, obviously, if you have an educator who is interested in a particular student, they're going to want to know who each other is online. But there are far too many of the services in that big slide that I presented to you that allow people to create fake IDs or fake usernames, and then it only takes a couple of seconds of conversation in the classroom for people to be able to find each other on a private Snapchat account or a private Instagram account. Facebook, really, as much as we 
criticize legitimately some of the things it does, it at least has a real ID requirement. It is much more difficult to create a hidden or fake Facebook account for this purpose. It's not impossible, because when it comes to tech, almost nothing is impossible at some level. But services like Twitter, for instance, or Snapchat or what have you, almost go out of their way to make it possible for people to do this. And it's, it's a real problem. If you hear of a teacher writing their kick ID on a school board, uh, on a uh, blackboard, that should be a real warning signal right away that something inappropriate may be going on. It's just not the kind of sharing that people should be doing. Um, you will run into uncooperative online service providers, uh, people who don't really want to get involved. And that actually is one of the reasons, skipping ahead a little bit, that is one of the reasons for the growth in encryption in these services. Because if you've got what's referred to as end-to-end -end encryption, where you're typing in plain text on your device, the app encrypts the message, sends it across the servers, and this is what app, uh, WhatsApp does, among others, and then when it gets to the recipient's device, it gets unencrypted or decrypted, and the person can read it. WhatsApp can't produce any of those messages. It has no ability to decrypt the information itself. And from their perspective, that is absolutely a feature because it means it doesn't have to deal with investigators pounding on the door saying, we want you know, the last 2,000 WhatsApp messages that this teacher sent to this student. And unless, and here's where things get tricky, unless those plain text messages are preserved in the app itself, they're gone. And that's, you know, that's the real potential power of end-to-end -end encryption. Now again, all of this is caveated by the fact that they can be forwarded to someone and they would be forwarded in plain text unless that other person is a WhatsApp user and then it's just transmission. They could be recorded by photo or video using another device. Uh, you could have third-party testimony of someone who was looking over a shoulder and read the message at the same time. Um, obviously, that gets into credibility issues, but they could testify as to what they saw. So there's a bunch of different ways to attack this problem, but it is absolutely clear that people are beginning to transition to encrypted messaging platforms. Now, going back up to manual deletion and destruction, one of the things that people are very fond of, particularly kids, is automatic deletion. And this is exactly the business model of Snapchat. One of the things that they figured out, wholly apart from trying to get topless shots of sorority girls, is that their goal was to give kids a way to exchange messages that they didn't have to live with. You know, that they could create this very ephemeral diary of their world and it wouldn't come back to haunt them or they weren't locked into a particular online image. And this is the contrast between Snapchat and Instagram, right? Instagram is this billboard of your life, and it's one of the reasons that psychologically it's so damaging for kids, and again, particularly for young women, because they feel this absolute pressure in order to put forward a particularly positive view of their life. And there are really disturbing articles about there about how people 
will delete an Instagram post within 90 seconds if it doesn't get a mentally specified number of likes, that it's just not good enough. And then they, they change, we get into all these issues of anorexia, body dysmorphia, all the rest of it, in order to conform to a particular zeitgeist on Instagram. Snapchat, to its minimal credit, gets rid of that because you're sending this thing that you only have to take 10 seconds of responsibility for, and then it's gone. So that may be good from a psychological perspective, but from an investigative perspective, it's much more challenging. Now, I have the, what I refer to as the ER example of how this is not a perfect system. So one of them, the automatic deletion and destruction, uh, the app Confide, any of you um, run across the name Anthony Weiner anytime? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's got to be brutal when your name is just a punchline. Um, so the thing, about Mis- the thing about Mr. Weiner is that he had three episodes of inappropriate communication online. So he accidentally tweeted out an um, image of himself in his briefs, when he was in Congress, and that led to his resignation from Congress. He was then running for mayor about three, four years later, and was actually doing really well, which may say something about New York. You know, (laughs) I'll allow you to draw that conclusion. And then it was discovered that he was secretly communicating with people under the pseudonym Carlos Danger and got caught when a porn star came forward and suggested that Carlos Danger was actually Anthony Weiner. And so that tanked, his, that tanked his mayoral campaign. Remarkably, not his marriage, but it tanked his campaign. And then the news emerged that there was a 15-year-old girl in North Carolina who was having these late-night conversations with Mr. Weiner. And Mr. Weiner thought he was going to be clever about this, and he used the app Confide. And the way Confide works is that not only is it end-to-end encryption, but when the message shows up on your screen, there's a series of orange bars blocking the text. And the only way you can read it is to drag your finger across each line. And as you do so, the text emerges, and when you reach the end of the line, it's deleted. So it's super secure. It's very popular in Washington, by the way, for reasons we won't go into. And of course, if you've been listening for the last 40 odd minutes, you know exactly what happened. That said 15-year-old girl had a either friend or accomplice, depending on who's writing the story, uh, standing next to her, and he, she, recorded the action of reading the message. And so every one of the messages that Anthony Weiner sent in the Confide app were preserved as evidence. And they were introduced at the subsequent federal trial, uh, which got him two years and change in federal prison. So, um, you know, we may look at these particular trends right here as being damaging to digital investigations. And there's no question that they're going to make things more difficult, but I am here to tell you it will not make things impossible just because of human nature. 
and you know and and beyond anything else at the end of the day people make stupid mistakes and stupid mistakes are your friends when it comes to digital investigations so real quickly um, and then we'll throw it open for 10 or 15 minutes of questions i'm not going to go through all of this but i do want to give you a heads up for next june um, these are the kinds of things that i talk about with respect to personal cyber traps um, one of my favorite areas, because of course, as a writer, it's just fascinating, are the teachers who get into trouble for works of art. Um, a surprisingly large number of people write erotic art, uh, erotic fiction. Um, there's the famous case of the Virginia teacher who did flower paintings using his butt, um, which uh, got him into trouble. Um, you know, it goes on and on. People are very creative and sometimes the school community is less than enthusiastic. Um, the professional cyber traps, you begin to see things get a little bit more, oops, excuse me, a little bit more comprehensive in terms of the different categories. Um, cameras and microphones are everywhere is an overlap because in terms of the personal misconduct of educators, uh, now that everybody has a video phone, people are being recorded doing stupid things in public that have nothing to do with their teaching, per se. I mean, we can have a debate about that. Is the guy who wanders down the street in his boxers drunk at eight in the morning, is that a reflection on his teaching ability or not? It's, we can have a legitimate talk about that. But the fact that the guy was recorded and that was put on social media now makes it a community issue. Um, obviously, cameras and microphones in the classroom, it was alluded to in the last session. This is a huge, huge issue because every single kid, for all intents and purposes, now has a video camera. They are all Woodward and Bernstein wannabes. They love catching teachers saying things or doing things that they don't like, that they think are inappropriate. And I can't stress this enough. Every single person sitting in that classroom is connected to a global publishing network, multiple global publishing networks. They can publish faster than you can finish your sentence, and they're so good at it. But again, from an evidentiary point of view, the fact that the kids are putting this out into the world, it's all fair game. You know, if the teacher is actively doing something wrong. So, for instance, in this particular category, if you've got an educator who is beating a child and that gets recorded and distributed out into the world, well, that's now part of the investigation. So there's multiple ways in which this stuff uh, goes out into the world. And then lastly, um, and this is stuff I've talked about at different uh, conferences, none of this comes as a shock to you. Uh, these are just my own particular organizations uh, for these topics. But uh, hopefully uh, when I get uh, this update done, uh, we'll have some new materials and some new uh, resources for you to take a look at. Last thing I wanted to close with, um, and Mary kind of stole my thunder on this a little bit, but uh, I'm on East Coast time, so I got up early this morning and I walked up to... Um, the memorial just up the hill, it's about three-tenths of a mile away. And this, this is personally significant to me because in addition to the Cybertrap stuff, I've been working on 
my next mainstream book, The Rise of the Digital Mob. And this bombing, which occurred in April 1995, was the first internet-fueled or internet-accelerated domestic terror attack in the United States. And it was really coming out of news groups and bulletin boards, all of which I'll explain in the book. There's <laughs> a lot of interesting community development that occurred in the early 80s and 90s. Um, and for those of you who haven't been there yet, the the memorial is gorgeous. It is one of the most beautifully designed memorials I've seen. And those chairs are arranged in nine rows. And the row that each chair is in represents the floor that that victim was on when the bomb exploded. And the sunlight that's coming through all of those first row chairs, mostly the kids in the daycare that blew up on the first floor. And, you know, I'm dad of four kids, so this really, it hits home. But more importantly, it's a reflection of the gruesome power of social media and the internet. And one of the reasons that this work is so important to me, because we've got to get a handle on what this is doing to us. And, you know, we see it in the classrooms, we see it in the schools, um, and increasingly, we see it in the world writ large, so hopefully we can do better. Great, great place to stroll and reflect, so I hope you'll go. In any case, we've got uh, 12 minutes for questions, so let's throw it open, whatever you'd like to ask. They may be able to, it depends on whether or not the service logs that. Um, one of the things that you will see is pen registers for text messages, exactly the same thing. Um, the cell phone companies years ago, probably wisely, made a decision that they could not save every text message. And it, right now, I think we're up to something like 250 billion text messages a year. I mean, the storage would be off the charts. But the pen register will tell you how many messages. Um, I've seen dozens of cases where an educator has exchanged three, 4,000 messages with a student in a month. Yeah, but with respect to the apps, that's much more a function of what decision they made in terms of the data to log. So I'm finding it interesting with technology teachers who are getting involved in creating their own pornography using pictures of their male body parts being inserted into pictures from a female student. They've never touched them, but they're creating their own. I just sat there in like shock, I guess, yeah. when I read this. And it, so I'm wondering how much is that something that you see a lot or not? Uh, fortunately, <laughs> well, and we're going we're gonna to parse out the word C here, but <laughs> um, I have actually worked on a couple of morphing cases, which this sort of falls into. 
Um, I don't think it's a huge trend, although I, will, I am here to report to you that one of the future topics, if these guys keep inviting me back, is the role of deep fakes um, on teacher-student relationships, because the ability to put a student's face on any video you choose is, is becoming increasingly easy. So at some point, one of you will talk about the fact that you are pulling the license of someone who put a 16-year-old girl's head on their favorite porn video. It will happen. I don't know which state will do it first. You can all compete, but it will happen at some point. Um, in terms of what you're talking about, though, Nancy, um, for a number of years, I've been working on this concept of trying to move that kind of violation into a category that I describe as electronic sexual assault, because I think that that is a good umbrella term for that kind of behavior, for which there is no good term right now. But I think that if we characterize it as using technology to assault someone sexually, then that seems to me a good starting place for the discussion. It takes, at least right at this particular moment, it takes a little bit more sophistication, which is why you're talking IT departments. The case I worked on was an art teacher who was very sophisticated in using Macs. Mac loves it when I talk about this. Um, but you know, he, he really knew how to use Photoshop and Lightshop and all of this other stuff. And he combined old school print materials with images of his students. And um, he's in federal prison in Vermont, so there you go. So I have a question about Discord. So I had a case um, where it started out as a, as a gaming club, um, and the student, you know, got to know the teacher through the gaming club real well. It was an after-school extracurricular activity, and once she graduated, he continued uh, to communicate with her. Her boyfriend was still in the school, um, and in exchange for a grade for her boyfriend, he started asking her for things, hmm. but before he engaging in that kind of conduct, he switched the, game, the conversation over to Discord, which he controlled the server, and he was able to erase the server before she could preserve any of the information. The only thing that saved the case for us was she was having a real-time text conversation with the boyfriend mm. while the Discord was being erased. And after he promised he made her promise never to tell anyone about what he said. Of course, right? Naturally, um, but she <laughs> mm -hmm. she fessed up that she told her boyfriend, and then he started communicating about what had happened with her again over regular text. So we were able to put the pieces together and make the case. But is that how do we handle Discord if if the creator of the server, or if that's what it's called, can erase it? Um, from there in, and it's erasing everything, how do we make a case out of using Discord? It's, it's incredibly difficult because you're exactly right that the Discord is structured in such a way that they make the service available to people who want to create communities, but they turn complete control over that community to the individual who does it. It's one of the reasons I think it is particularly dangerous because that preservation doesn't occur except by accident. 
you know, obviously, you know, the young woman could have taken photos of her laptop screen. Uh, she could have print screened whatever. But right. absent that, you're kind of stuck. Okay. So, let, <laughs> let, me, let me just interject one thing before Glenn. I mean, I will tell you that gaming is a rising vector for these relationships. Uh, there was a case in New York recently of a teacher who was disciplined because he was offering Fortnite gaming sessions as an incentive for his students to do well on exams. And then there have been conversations that went off the rails and all the rest of that. But I mean, gaming is a big, big, big deal, particularly as many schools are moving into e-sport clubs. So you're starting to have teachers serving as e-sport coaches, which just intensifies all of this online communication. Okay, a, a few comments. One is, Sometimes it's useful to look at the school server using software called Boss to see what someone's been searching. Because they may be searching online for gifts for a student or searching for pictures. So there's a record when someone is using the Wi-Fi, which may not be on the computer, of every place that someone has searched. And that's become really important in school threat assessment cases where people may be searching Columbine or other types of things why they're planning a school attack. So we've found that really useful in, in preventing acts of violence. The other thing is, like what we learned with Manafort, was he was using WhatsApp when contacting witnesses. Uh, just because it was uh, destroyed didn't necessarily mean that iPhones didn't keep copies of what was being sent. So sometimes they exist on iPhones. One of uh, the projects I was involved with Fred with was a school district where a student filmed another having sex with him and then posted it uh, and then was shared among the students. And suddenly the school sort of had liability like it does with cyberbullying. And then the issue became, how do we handle these issues that are coming up? And maybe you could talk about it, Fred, out of the schools which are uh, revenge porn and sextortion and these other elements that come up. Well, and these are all things that I'm trying to lump under the concept of electronic sexual assault because a lot of what people consider to be quote-unquote revenge porn is neither revenge nor pornography, but it is a misuse of an intimate image in an inappropriate fashion. But putting that aside, you know, I think that the point that you raise with respect to the search is really, really important because even though someone is using a private device, there is logging that can occur if they're using the school network. So you really want to make sure that you reach out to the IT department, preserve whatever is available within a school district, just in, just in case you want to do that kind of analysis. The one other point I wanted to make with respect to what Glenn is alluding to is that you're really going to want to talk to your forensics people because there is a distinction in terms of how data is preserved on a phone. Obviously with, you know, for instance, an iPhone or an Android, text messages and, and videos and photographs and so forth are written directly to the device. With some of these apps that we're talking about, they don't do that. All of the information stays within the app. And then there are some that are a little bit of a hybrid. So for instance, with respect to TikTok, you can choose to save your TikTok videos to your camera roll, which means now that data is leaking out of the app. And so it's potentially available under you know, regular processes for recovery. Then beyond all of that, even if some of these apps are deleted, 
all of them handle the quote-unquote deletion of data differently. So it may be forensically possible to retrieve data that someone thinks that they have deleted. I mean, for years when I was talking to public defenders and to attorneys and so forth, I would make it clear to them that the delete button was the most useless button on a computer, you know, particularly with hard drives. Now, it's gotten a little bit more complicated, obviously, with flash memory and so forth. But back in the days of widespread real hard drive, I'm sounding older and older as I talk, um, real hard drives, deleting data took some real effort. And the whole computer forensics industry arose out of the fact that when Bill Gates and Steve Wozniak were writing the early operating systems, the hardware was so slow and miserable that they didn't want to take the time to overwrite the data in order to make the space available. That's, that decision is the entire basis of computer forensics, right there. And so, you know, for good or for ill, and there are a whole pile of people sitting in jail who would answer it one way. Um, that's, that's why we're here today. Um, so anyway, thank you very much, folks. Follow up with any questions. We have reached the end of another episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, especially leading up to the holidays, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic or guest suggestions. <laughs> if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have enjoyed this podcast. Please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service. We appreciate having you in our audience and look forward to you joining us for our next episode on Thursday, another interview from the PPI Institute down in Oklahoma City. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to ixl.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's ixl.com slash B-E.